Part 4 of Biltmore Oswald, The Diary of a Hapless Recruit by J. Thorne Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Boydell. Part 4 April 30th. I took my barkeeping pal home over the last weekend liberty. It was a mistake. He admits it himself. Mother will never have him in the house again. Mother could never get him in the house again. He fears her. The first thing he did was to mix poor dear grandfather a drink that caused the old gentleman to forget his game leg, which had been damaged in battles ranging anywhere from the Mexican to the Spanish wars, according to grandfather's mood at the time he is telling the story. But which, I believe, according to a private theory of mine, was really caught in a folding bed. However it was, Grandfather forgot all about this leg of his entirely and insisted on dancing with Nora, our new maid. Mother, of course, was horrified. But not content with that, this friend of mine concocted some strange beverage for the pater which so delighted him that he loaned my so-called pal the ten-spot I had been intending to borrow. The three of them sat up until all hours of the night playing cards and telling ribald stories. As mother took me upstairs to bed, she gazed down on her father-in-law and her husband in the clutches of this demon and remarked bitterly to me, Like father, like son, and I knew that she was thoroughly determined to make both of them pay dearly for their pleasant interlude. Breakfast the next morning was a rather trying ordeal. Grandfather once more resorted to his game leg with renewed vigour, referring several times to the defence of the Alamo, so I knew he was pretty low in his mind. Father withdrew at the sight of Bacon. Mother laughed scornfully as he departed. My friend ate a hearty breakfast and kept a sort of happy-go-lucky monologue throughout its entire course. I took him out walking afterwards and forgot to bring him back. April 31st. Have just come off guard duty and feel quite exhausted. The guns are altogether too heavy. I can think of about five different things I could remove from them without greatly decreasing their utility. The first would be the barrel. The artist who drew the picture in the last camp paper of Dawn appearing in the form of a beautiful woman must have had more luck than I've ever had. I think he would have been closer to the truth if he had put her in a speeding automobile on its way home from a roadhouse. It surely is a proof of discipline to hear the mocking, silver-toned laughter of women ringing out in the night only ten feet away and not drop your gun and follow it right through the barbed wire. After the war, I'm going to buy a lot of barbed wire and cut it up into little bits just to relieve my feelings. Last night I had the fright of my life. Someone was fooling around the fence in the darkness. "'Who's there?' I cried. "'Why, I'm Kaiser William,' came the answer in a subdued voice. "'Well, I wish you'd go away, Kaiser William,' said I nervously. "'You're busting the lights out of rule number six. "'What's that?' asked the voice. "'Not to commit a nuisance with anyone except in a military manner,' I replied, becoming slightly involved. 
"'That's not such a wonderful rule,' came back the voice in complaining tones. "'I couldn't make up a rule better than that.' "'Don't try tonight,' I pleaded. There was silence for a moment, then the voice continued seriously. "'Say, I'm not Kaiser William, really. Honest, I'm not.' "'Well, who are you?' I asked impatiently. "'Why, I'm Tux,' the voice replied. "'Folks call me that because I take so many of them in my trousers.' "'Well, Tux,' I replied, "'you'd better be moving on. "'I don't know what might happen with this gun. "'I'm tempted to shoot the cartridge out of it just to make it lighter.' "'Oh, you can't shoot me!' cried Tux. "'I'm crazy. "'I bet you didn't know that, did you?' "'I wasn't sure,' I answered. "'Oh, I'm awfully crazy,' continued Tux. "'Everybody says so. "'And I look it in the daylight.' "'You must,' I replied. "'Well, good night,' said Tux in the same subdued voice. "'If you find a flock of pink Liberty Bonds around here, remember I lost them.' He departed in the direction of City Island. May 1st I visited the office of the camp paper today and found it to be an extremely hectic place.' In the course of a conversation with the chief, I chanced to look up and caught two shining eyes staring malevolently at me from a darkened corner of the room. This creature blinked at me several times very rapidly, wiggled its moustache, and suddenly disappeared into the thick shadows. "'Who is that?' I cried, startled. "'That's our mad photographer,' said the chief. "'What do you think of him?' "'Do you keep him in there?' I asked, pointing to the cold, black, cupboard-like room into which this strange creature had disappeared. "'Yes,' said the chief, "'and he likes it. Often he stays there for days at a time, only coming out for air. At this juncture there came from the dark room the sounds of breaking glass, which was immediately followed by strange, animal-like sounds as the mad photographer burst out of his den and proclaimed to all the world that nothing meant very much in life and that it would be absolutely immaterial to him if the paper and its entire staff should suddenly be visited with flood, fire and famine. After this gracious and purely gratuitous piece of information, he again withdrew. But strange mutterings still continued to issue forth from his lair. While I was sitting in the office, the editor happened to drift in from an adjacent room, crisply attired in a pair of ragged, disreputable trousers and a sleeveless grey sweater, which was ravelling in numerous places. It was the shock of my life. "'Where's our yeoman?' he grumbled, at which the yeoman, who somehow reminded me of some character from one of Dickens' novels, edged out of the door, but he was too late. Spying him, the editor launched forth on a violent denunciation, in which, for no particular reason, the cartoonist and sporting editor joined. There they stood, the three of them, abusing this poor, simple yeoman in the most unnecessary manner, as far as I could make out. Three harder cutthroats I have never encountered. While in the office I came upon a rather elderly artist crouched over in a corner, writhing as if he were in great pain. He was in the throes of composition, I was told, and he looked it. Poor wretch, he seemed to have something on his mind. The only man I saw who seemed to have anything like a balanced mind was the financial shark, a little ferret-eyed, honorary-looking cuss whom I wouldn't have trusted out of my sight. 
he was sitting with his nose thrust in some dusty volume, totally oblivious of the pandemonium that reigned around him. He either has a great mind or none at all, probably the latter. I fear I would never make an editor. The atmosphere is simply altogether too strenuous for me. May 4th There seems to be no place in the service for me. I cannot decide what rating to select. To be a quartermaster one must know how to signal, and signalling always tires my arms. One must know how to blow a horrid shrill little whistle in order to come a boatswain mate, and my ears could never stand this. To be a yeoman it is necessary to know how to rattle papers in an important manner, and to disseminate misinformation with a straight face, and this I could never do. I fear the only thing left for me is to try for a commission. I am sure I would be a valuable addition to any wardroom. May 6th Man the drags! Hey there, you flannel-footed camel! Stop galloping! What are you doing anyway? Playing horses? Don't be ridiculous, I cried out, hot with rage and humiliation. You know perfectly well I am not playing horse. I realise as well as you do that this is a serious, at this juncture of my brave retort, a gun barrel stove in the back of my head. Someone kicked me on the shin, and in some indescribable manner the butt of a rifle became tangled between my feet, and down I went in a cloud of dust and oaths. One-fourth of the entire Pelham field artillery passed over my body, together with its crew, while through the roar and confusion raised by this horrible cataclysm I could hear innumerable CPOs howling and blackguarding me in a frenzied tones, and I dimly distinguished their forms dancing in rage amid descending bellows of dust. The parade ground swirled dizzily around me, but I had no desire to arise and begin life anew. It would not be worth while. I felt I had at most a short time to live, and that was too long. The world offered nothing but the most horrifying possibilities to me. What is the Biltmore to a man in uniform anyway? I remember thinking to myself as I lay there with my nose pressed flat to an antil. All the best parts of it are arid districts, waste places, limitless Saharas to him. Death, where is thy sting? I continued as an outraged ant assaulted my nose. The world came throbbing back. I felt myself being dragged violently away from my resting place. I was choking. Bidding farewell to the ants, I preferred myself to swoon when gradually, as if from a great distance, I heard the voice of my P.O. He was almost crying. "'Take him out!' he pleaded. "'For God's sake, take him out! He's hurting our gun!' This remark gave me the strength to rise, but not gracefully. My intention was to address a few hand-picked words to this P.O. of mine, but fortunately for my future peace of mind, I was beyond utterance. Weakly I tottered in the direction of the gun, hoping to support myself upon it. "'Hey, come away from that gun!' howled the P.O. "'Don't let him touch it, fellas,' he pleaded. "'Don't let him go near it. He'll spoil it. He'll completely destroy it.' "'Say, buddy,' said the chief to me, and how I hated the ignominy of the word. "'I guess I'll take you out of the game for today. "'I'm responsible for government property, 
and you are altogether too big a risk. "'What shall I do?' I asked huskily. "'Where shall I go?' "'Do,' he repeated in a thoughtful voice. "'Go? Well, here's where you can go,' he told me, "'and this is what you can do when you get there, "'and as I departed rather hastily, he told me this also.' The entire parade ground heard him. How shall I ever be able to hold up my head again in camp? I departed the spot, but only under one boiler. However, I made fair speed. Like a soldier returning from a week in the trenches, I sought the comfort and seclusion of the YMCA. Here I witnessed a checker contest of a low order between two unscrupulous brothers. They had a particular technique completely their own. It consisted of arts and dodges, and an extravagant use of those adjectives one is commonly supposed to shun. "'Say there's a queen down the end of the room,' one of them would suddenly exclaim, and while the other brother was gazing eagerly in that direction, he would deliberately remove several of his men from the board. But the other brother, who was not so balm as he looked, would occasionally discover this slight irregularity, and proceed to express his opinion of it by word of mouth, which, for sheer force of expression, was in the nature of a revelation to me. It was appalling to sit there and watch those two young men, who had evidently at one time come from a good home, sit in God's bright sunshine and cheat each other throughout the course of the afternoon and lie out of it in the most obvious manner. The game was finally discontinued, owing to a shortage of checkermen, which they had secreted in their pockets, a fact which each stoutly denied with many weird and rather indelicate vows. I left them engaged in the pleasant game of recrimination, which had to do with stolen golf balls, the holding out of change, and kindred sort of subjects. In my weakened condition, this display of fraternal depravity so offended my instinctive sense of honour that I was forced to retire behind the protective pages of a 1913 issue of The Farmer's Wife Indispensable Companion, where I managed to lose myself for the time being in a rather complicated exposition of how to tell which chicken laid what egg, if any or something to that effect, an article that utterly demolished the moral character of the average hen, leaving her hardly a leg to roost on. May 8th. "'Give away,' said the coxswain today, when we were struggling to get our cutter off the pier, and I gave away to such an extent, in fact, that I suddenly became myself balanced cleverly on the back of my neck in the bottom of the boat, so that I experienced the rather odd sensation of feeling the hot sun on the soles of my feet. This procedure, of course, did not go unnoticed. Nothing I do goes unnoticed, save the good things.' The coxswain made a few comments which showed him to be a thoroughly ill-bred person, but further than this I was not persecuted. After we had rode interminable distances through league upon league of doggedly resisting water, a man in the bow remarked casually that he had several friends in Florida we might call upon if we kept it up a little longer. But the coxswain, comfortably ensconced upon the hackam attack, was so deeply engrossed in the perusal of a vest-pocket edition of The Merchant of Venice that he failed to grasp the full meaning of the remark. I lifted my rapidly glazing eyes with no little effect from the keelson and discovered to my horror that we had hardly passed more than half a mile of shoreline at the most. 
What we had been doing all the time I was unable to figure out. I thought we'd been rowing. I could have sworn we'd been rowing, but apparently we'd not. I looked up from my meditation in time to catch the ironical gaze of the coxswain upon me, and I involuntarily braced myself to the assault. "'Say there, sailor,' said he, with a slow, unpleasant drawl. "'You're not rowing. You're weaving. It's fancy work you're doing. Blast your eyes!' All who was sufficient strength left in them laughed jeeringly at this wise observation. But I retained a dignified silence, that is, so far as a man panting from exhaustion can be silent. At this moment we passed a small boat being rowed briskly along by a not unattractive girl. "'Now watch her,' said the coxswain helpfully to me. "'Study the way that poor fragile girl, that mere child, pulls the oars.' and try to do likewise. I observed in shamed silence. My hands ached. A motorboat slid swiftly by, and I distinctly saw a man drinking beer from a bottle. Hell isn't dark and smoky, thought I to myself. Hell is bright and sunny, and there is a lot of sparkling water in it, and on the sparkling water are innumerable boats, and in these boats are huddled the poor, lost mortals who are forced to listen through eternity to the wise cracks of a cloven-hooved, spark-tailed coxswain. That's what hell is, thought I, and I'm in my probation period right now. Feather your oars! suddenly screamed our master at the straining crew. Feather me eye! yelled back a courageous Irishman. What do you think these oars are, anyway, a flock of hummingbirds? Whoever heard of feathering a hundred-ton weight? Feather Pike's Peak, say I, it's just as easy. Somehow we got back to the pier, but I was almost delirious by this time. The last part of the trip was all one drab, dull nightmare to me. This evening my hands were so swollen I was forced to the extremity of bribing a friend to hold the telephone receiver for me when I called up Mother. "'What have you been doing?' she asked. "'Rowing,' came my short answer. "'What a splendid outing!' she exclaimed. "'You had such a lovely day for it, didn't you, dear?' "'Hang up that receiver!' I shouted to my friend. "'Hang it up, or my mother shall hear from the lips of her son words she shall only hear from her husband.' "'May ninth. "'I am just after having been killed in a sham battle.' and so consequently I feel rather ghastly today. I don't exactly know whether I was a red or a blue, because I did a great deal of fighting on both sides, but always with the same result. I was killed instantly and completely. People got sick of putting me out of my misery after a while, and I was allowed to wander around at large in a state of great mystification and excitement, shooting my blank bullets into the face of nature in an aimless sort of manner whenever the battle began to pall upon me. Most of the time I passed pleasantly on the soft, fresh flank of a hill where for a while I slept until a cow breathed heavily in my face and reminded me that it was war after all. My instructions were to keep away from the guns and get killed as soon as possible. As these instructions were not difficult to follow, I carried them out to the letter, 
I stayed away from the guns, and I permitted myself to be killed several times in order to make sure it would take. After that I became a sort of composite camp follower, deserter, and straggler. In my wandering I chanced upon an ancient enemy of many past encounters. "'Are you red or blue?' I asked, preparing to die for the fifth time. No, he answered sarcastically, I'm what you might call elephant ear grey. Are you the guy the reporter for the camp paper was referring to in his last story? I asked him. Yes, he replied, the slandering blackguard. You hit me on the nose with a push ball, said I. I'll do it again, said he. That reporter, evidently a man of some observation, said you didn't wash your neck and that you have the habits of a camel. But I do wash my neck, he said stubbornly, and I don't know anything about the habits of a camel, but whatever they might happen to be, I haven't got em. Yes, I replied, as if to myself, you certainly should wash your neck. That's the very least you could do. But I tell you, he cried desperately, I keep telling you that I do wash my neck. Why do you go on talking about it as if I didn't? I tell you now, once for all time that I do wash me neck, and that ends it. Don't talk any more. I want to think. We sat in silence for a space. Then I remarked casually, almost inaudibly, and you certainly shouldn't have the habits of a camel. The depraved creature stirred uneasily. I ain't got em, he said. Good, I cried heartily. We understand each other perfectly. In the future you will try to wash your neck and cease from having the habits of a camel. No compromise is necessary. I know you will keep your word. Go away quickly, he gasped, searching around for a stone to hurl at me and discarding several because of their small size. Go away to somewhere else, I'm telling you now. Go away or else a special detail will find your lifeless body here in the bushes sometime tomorrow. I've already been thoroughly killed several times today, I said, putting a tree between us. But don't forget about the camel, and for heaven's sake, do try to keep your neck. A stone hit the tree with a resounding crack, and I increased the distance. Damn the torpedoes, I shouted back as I disappeared into the pleasant security of the sun-warmed woods. End of Part 4